0: Please rise, beginning in verse fifteen, or verse 5 through verse 12. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, "Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand or uh, of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen.
1: What a wonderful Easter celebration we had last Sunday.
0: Our Easter feast is the high point of the church year for me. It's glorious to see to hear, to feel the communion that we have in Christ, and to lift up our hearts, our voices, our forks, to the glory of God. Of course, like all great celebrations, there was a lot of work that went into it, and I'm very grateful for everyone who contributed. It reminds me of that verse in 1 Chronicles thirteen eight, which says, And David and all Israel celebrated before the Lord with all their might. So thank you to Carolyn and the choir and our other musicians, the great singing to the Adelphi ladies and their hard work in preparing and serving the feast, to Kara for planning the activities and for the countless other demonstrations of hospitality, service, and unseen kindness, and just for the great conversation. So thanks be to God. And so it is also uh, good to rest when it's over. Now, there's another kind of hard work and that we have to get back to, and that's the work of applying the Bible to our lives. That's our routine work, day in and day out, of listening to its instru- instructions and taking it to heart. We're called to live by every word of God, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and it is the work of pastors to shepherd the sheep, and this includes feeding, guiding, protecting, or as the Apostle Paul instructed Pastor Timothy, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke to Israel concerning promises as well as warnings and calls to repentance. Likewise, the apostles wrote to the churches of the New Testament, Uh, In the New Testament period, uh, to both encourage and to deal with particular problems or threats that arose, moreover, the ministry of Jesus was not simply one of pleasant sayings and platitudes, but but was regularly filled with what we could characterize as hard sayings, hard things to listen to. The sermons and teachings of the Bible are varied in both style and application. They deal with the big picture without neglecting the personal and the individual. Just as a good parent praises children for their praiseworthy acts, but also evaluates and discovers weaknesses in their children, and then moves to address them and strengthen their children in order to prepare them to be fruitful and productive. So too, a true pastor avoids the hard task of shepherding doesn't avoid the hard; he does avoid it sometimes, but he shouldn't. Uh, he doesn't avoid the hard task of pastoring, um, uh, but rather is willing to speak directly to the areas where there's the most need, even if it's not always the most wanted. Therefore, I intend to preach a series of sermons on the topic of self-righteousness. Scripture, especially Jesus, has quite a bit to say about this topic. When the Bible issues multiple warnings, it's because there are real dangers.
1: Self-righteousness,
0: which is a manifestation of pride, um, it occupy, and it occupies um, and a, a great deal of our life and a great deal of the blind spots that we have, self-righteousness is our greatest danger. I'll say that again. Self righteousness is our greatest danger. And we're worried about all kinds of things in the world. We watch the news, read the paper, all kinds of things to scare us. There's war and political issues and health issues, all kinds of things, but the single greatest threat to us is self righteousness. This includes arrogance, haughtiness, egotism, intolerance. Prejudice, all of which are just different faces of pride. And so, other than the Romans, let me ask you, who are the main bad guys in the New Testament? The Pharisees, thank you. And to a lesser degree, the Sadducees and the Scribes. And so some of these were the ones who ultimately would demand the death of Jesus. The New Testament mentions them over, the Pharisees, over a hundred times, and so it's obvious that we need to pay attention to them and see what Jesus has to teach us about them, and more importantly, how this might apply to us. Now, I think that I can promise you that the next few weeks are going to be, to understate it, uncomfortable. Uh, One of the things that... uh, uh, One of the things that leaven came to symbolize in the Bible was impurity. So when Jesus warned against the leaven of someone's teaching, he was warning against uh, ways in which the true message uh, of God's kingdom could be corrupted or diluted or watered down. And so little by little it creeps in and creeps over us. And so if you can hear what the Bible has to say about Pharisees and remain comfortable then you should be highly concerned. Nevertheless, being made uncomfortable by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is a good thing. He loves us. That's why he speaks directly to us. He tells us the truth about us, and about himself, and about sin, and about righteousness. No pain, no gain. Light shining in a dark place is revealing and startling and we are, because we are often forced to see things we would, we'd rather not see. So let me ask you, have you ever not sought the counsel from a parent, a friend, or a pastor because you kind of knew what they were going to say, but you didn't want to hear it? So you kept your own counsel or you went to selective people and told them a selective story in order to get the answer that you wanted to hear? Well, I'd like to suggest that we all do that with the Bible. Don't we? We avoid certain things. We know what it says, and we kind of conveniently forget. Because his standards are demanding, and we prefer our softer version. And by the way, we won't get into it today, but we're going to see that this is one of the primary problems with the Pharisees. We always think of the Pharisees as strict, but actually they created a standard that was achievable. So they weren't near as strict as God. So God devotes, again, a fair amount of place to describing Jesus' interaction with Pharisees, and he does so because there are many important lessons to be learned. So I'm going to ask you to do something from the very beginning. At first glance, since the Pharisees seem to be such bad guys in the Bible, we might be tempted to dismiss them and not think that they have anything to do with us. They're the bad guys, and we're not bad guys. It's easy to try to see ourselves in the more noble characters of the Bible. But I want us to look very hard at ourselves and see if we can find our inner Pharisee. He's in there. He might be hiding, but he's in there. And so we're going to pause right now, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to search us and try us and see if there's a Pharisee inside. So, bow your head, please. Now, don't ask for your neighbor, only ask for yourself. Lord, show me the real me. Show me every place where I rely upon my righteousness instead of the righteousness of Christ. Show me my pride and my arrogance, my haughtiness, my condescension, my judgmental attitudes. Lord, reveal that to me even though it's painful. Show me so that I might turn from it and I might rely upon Christ and Him alone. in his name we pray. Amen.
1: So we're going to take a little time with this
0: study, and I've been asked before, what's the difference between a sermon and a Bible study? And I think some good Pharisees could probably parse that out way better than I can. Um, Traditionally, there are some stylistic differences, preferences, and expectations, but biblically and practically, I think it might be a distinction without a difference. In either case, pastoring requires both, and so call it what you will, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says about the Pharisees and consider what we can learn from that. So today is a simple introduction. We'll get to the hard stuff as we go along, so you can relax a little bit today, uh, So, and I would ask you this, if you have to miss a Sunday, let me encourage you to get the recording so you won't miss something that is critical to your spiritual maturity. Who were the Pharisees? Well, before we can start to understand the lessons that Jesus taught about the Pharisees, we first must have an accurate understanding of who the Pharisees are. As I said, since the Bible has a fair number of negative things to say about them, we might be tempted to overlook some of the important positive aspects of the Pharisees, and in so doing we would fail to see ourselves perhaps where we should see ourselves. The rest of today's sermon will be setting the table for following sermons, so it's important to have this good foundation regarding who the Pharisees really were. Tom Hovestel in his book Extreme Righteousness offers some good background information. The Pharisees emerged in Israel in response to religious, cultural, and political developments that Uh, extended back to the Greek Empire and perhaps earlier. Now, I put a chart in your order of worship. Hopefully you had a chance to glance at that. If not, you can glance at that later that lays out the various major groups. Uh, You can kind of see left and right, liberal, conservative. Uh, We're going to be, of course, talking about the Pharisees. And so I think you'll find as we go along and we're talking about the Pharisees that that will be the group that most of you, most of us, Of of those groups, we find ourselves identifying most with. And so they became prominent during the time of the Maccabees, um, approximately 160 to 60 B.C., and their two greatest rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, appeared during the final decades before Christ's birth. Their respective schools dominated the religious scene in Israel for the next two centuries, Shammai was the conservative and Halil was the moderate. And by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had become essentially the religious leaders in Israel. They founded and controlled the synagogue uh, and were represented on the Sanhedrin or the council, which were the assemblies of rabbis appointed to sit in tribunal, a sort of city council or court. A lesser Sanhedrin, or council of 23 judges, was appointed to each city. But there was to be one great Sanhedrin of 71 judges, which among other roles acted as the Supreme Court, taking appeals from cases decided by lesser courts. I looked at this, I thought, well, they were kind kind of like Presbyterians in that sense. Uh, Though the hardcore Pharisees were apparently few in number, their influence was considerable. Even Herod, who really despised their views, was forced to respect their influence with uh, with uh, with the masses, and so he was pretty careful not to offend them. They had political influence. First century Israel had a population about the size of Houston, Texas. About two and a half million people. There were about 7,000 Pharisees in the first century, Israel. So if we were thinking about Nacogdoches, if I did my math right, which is probably doubtful. Um, that means we would have, among 30,000 people, we'd have about 75 Pharisees in Nacogdoches. Doesn't seem like very many people. That's more people than we have in this room. Half as many people as we have in this room, basically. Okay, but there were, keep in mind though, there, while, there's, while this is a small percentage of the population, they were disproportionately influential uh, as religious leaders. There were, here, here's part of the reason why there were 480 synagogues. So think of a synagogue like a local church. So 480 of those for local meetings, for worship and instruction, plus the various Sanhedrins in every town, every city. There were the councils that the Pharisees were part of the leadership of. And then also they had schools where they taught children. So they had a school movement as well. So their influence, even though their numbers were not that big, their influence was considerable. The historian Alfred Edersheim, many of you familiar with, said this about the Pharisees. There would be no difficulty in recognizing a Pharisee. Walking behind him, the chances were he would soon halt to say his prescribed prayers. If the fixed time for them had come, he would stop short in the middle of the road, perhaps say one section of them, move on, again say another part, and so on, till. Whatever else might be doubted, there could be no question of the conspicuousness of his devotions in market pl- in the marketplace or corners of the street. There he would stand, as taught by the traditional law. He would draw his feet well together, compose his body and clothes, and bend so low that every vertebrae in his back would stand out separate, or at least till the skin over his heart would fall into folds. So he's very dramatically bowing, is the picture here. The workman would drop his tools, the burden bearer his load. If a man had already one foot in the stirrup, he would withdraw it. The hour had come and nothing could be suffered or allowed to interrupt or disturb him. The very salutation of a king, it was said, must go unreturned. And this, I thought especially of uh, of Lee and Jason Robertson and Giovanna, since we were talking about this last Sunday. See what you think. So you got the picture, the very salutation of a king. It was said, must remain unreturned. Nay, the twisting of a serpent around one's heel must remain unheeded. Now that's dedication, isn't it? So, looking at the roots of the Pharisees historically, we can see some striking similarities to the Protestant Reformation. As the clergy and religious culture of Judaism moved increasingly in a secular direction, a group of godly laymen rose up to reclaim the identity of the Jews as the people of God's Word. They were determined to get back to the Bible. These biblical pursuits had a major hand in establishing new centers for their faith. Houses of study known as the synagogue, again, like the local churches. It was was in the synagogues where the Jews (coughs) could carefully (coughs) study and apply the Bible to every aspect of life. They were the primary proponents of a strong Bible-based education, the forerunners of our emphasis on Christian education. The Pharisees asserted the responsibility of every Jew, not just the priest and the scribes, to know and practice the Bible, the law of God. They also protested, they were Protestants, protested the corruption of their religion and resisted the humanism of their day, the the Hellenists or the Greeks and their culture. And in this ensuing culture war, they promoted their historic faith with tenacity. They sought to reform an overly ritualistic and meaningless worship. They faithfully practiced their faith, and sometimes they were persecuted for it. They were the theological conservatives. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3, The, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. And the Apostle Paul likewise cited the Pharisees theologically in Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through 10. And the Pharisees, as we've said, were very interested in studying the Bible and applying it to all of life. So there are several things about Pharisees to commend them. They generally held a sound biblical doctrine and interpretation. They had a high view of Scripture. They had a well-developed liturgy. They made a zealous application of Scripture to all of life. And so there is much that we can find in the Pharisees that we could identify with. Moreover, the Pharisees sought to sincerely live out their faith. They were generally recognized in the community as being more religious or more faithful than the average person. Jesus made a startling statement in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a startling, stunning statement for Jesus to make. You'll remember that in the New Testament we find Jesus in the synagogue in Luke 4. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up and read. Remember the synagogues were founded by the the Pharisees. And so, um, the Pharisees also modeled this righteous lifestyle in at least five other areas. First, their prayer life. They prayed publicly, regularly, ritually, and respectfully, and often they fasted when they prayed. Second, they lived consecrated or separate lives. The very name Pharisee is derived from a word that means separate ones. Third, they valued fellowship. Josephus record, uh, uh, records, quote, Pharisees are affectionate to each other and cultivate harmonious relations within the community. Fourth, they were good givers. The Pharisees left no conceivable source of income outside their determination to give God his due. Luke 18. And fifth, They were active evangelists. Jesus said they would travel over land and sea to get one proselyte, one convert. And so the Pharisees, like us, championed what we called traditional values and stood for the old ways over against the encroachments of the new secular lifestyles. Halil, one of the primary leaders of the Pharisees, said, quote, Be of the disciple of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving mankind and bringing them to the law. So I hope as as we're going here, we're getting a little different picture. Because again, there are a number of negative things said, but we're seeing some of the more positive things about the Pharisees that we can identify with. In the Gospels, we have three examples of Pharisees who had the kindness and courage to invite Jesus to their house for dinner. As some of the Pharisees came out to see and hear Jesus, even in their challenges to Him, we read that they left glorifying God, Luke 5, 26, And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Talking about Jesus. In Luke 13, 31, after Jesus had just finished teaching on the way into the the kingdom, we read this, On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So they were warning Jesus. They were protecting Jesus. So not all the Pharisees wanted Jesus dead. And then there are two well-known Pharisees in the Gospels, one named Nicodemus and the other Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus was a high-ranking Pharisee. John 3, 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He seems to have been a sincere seeker of the truth. John 3, 1 and 2, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Eventually, he spoke on behalf of Jesus and was criticized for it. John 7, starting in verse 45, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? So Nicodemus is now before his compatriots, fellow Pharisees, defending Jesus. After the crucifixion, Nicodemus spent considerable money for the spices For Jesus' burial in John 19.39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Joseph of Arimathea, after the crucifixion of Jesus, requested his body. Luke 23, verse 50 through 53. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member. Uh, of the Sanhedrin, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision Indeed, He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, laid it in the tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. (coughs) So among the Pharisees, there was some division regarding what they thought about Jesus John 9:16 uh, therefore some of the Pharisees said this man is not from God because he does not keep the sabbath others said how can a man who is a sinner do such signs and there was a division among them In Acts 5:33 through 42 we also see a leading Pharisee named Gamaliel Protecting the apostles. When some wanted to kill them, he called for an executive session of the Sanhedrin. So the apostles left the room. Now there they are, with, just with the council. And he offered a, def- a defense of the apostles, effectively argue- arguing for tolerance in the face of his peers. And some years later, another group of Pharisees helped save the life of the apostle Paul in Acts 23. And in Acts 15:5 we learn that some of the Pharisees had become believers. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, "It is necessary to is it necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses." So here here are some Pharisees that became Christians. And finally, and significantly, the apostle Paul was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. He had been educated under Rabbi Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hyliel, one of the key leaders of the Pharisees. Paul says in Acts 22.3, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. In Acts 26, Paul says, my manner of life from my youth which was spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, all the Jews know, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And then Philippians 3, 4 through 6. I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. And so Paul is actually not speaking critically here. He's actually saying, I've got a pretty good resume here when it comes to the Bible, my credentials as a Jew, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and as a Pharisee, commend me, and of course what he's going to go on to say is, but it turned out that wasn't enough. Even with all of that, as good as that is, and as we think about ourselves, okay, we're born in America, Christian nation, perhaps many of us, raised in the church, baptized when very young, or even as infants, Perhaps here every week, we read our Bibles, we believe our Bibles. We could say a lot of the same things, but the question before us is going to be, is that enough? Are we putting our trust in those things? Or, and if we do, then we're stopping short of where we need to be. See, Paul thought he was going to be able to commend himself to God because of all these things. But he's going to get stopped in his tracks on the road to Damascus by Jesus with nothing short of a rude awakening. That none of that, none of that was going to be good enough. And in fact, much of it was misguided. Much of it was simply wrong. So I want to remind you of why I've taken the time this morning to point out many good things about some of the Pharisees and to show the parallels between them and us. It's important for us not to allow our prejudices against the Pharisees to blind us to the fact that many of them were good people, put that in quotes, just like us. As a group, these were the conservative evangelical believers of their day. Next week, we'll begin to look more closely at the leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus warned his disciples of. Let's pray. Father, you know us infinitely better than we know ourselves, yet even we know that we are filled with pride and self-righteousness, which manifests itself in countless ways, ways toward you and others. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us, and grant us humble hearts to show mercy toward all those around us, for whatever mercy we might show, it is, still a t- it is still tiny compared to the mercy that you have shown us. Give us the eyes to see and eyes of faith to trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we begin to consider and expose the great danger, the grave danger of self righteousness, the goal is to reveal the true righteousness that rescues us from the evils of self righteousness. We must have a righteousness that is not our own, for there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 as we prepare to come to the table. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Think of the Pharisees, right? But not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scriptures say, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. O Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with bold and courageous faith that we might trust You and move. Grant us to see that our earthly hope is in the gospel of Christ, that we might act to build and advance Your kingdom. Enable us to obey your call that we might actively evangelize the nations and take on the mission that you've called us to. And so we pledge to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Indeed, to teach men and nations all things whatsoever you have commanded. Give us courage and boldness to speak the truth in love. And now, as we begin this new week... May we do so with fresh commitment to our Lord and Savior. Bless now our rest, our feast, and our ongoing communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Thank